Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Sheldon, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our January 2017 issue. You'll hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Antisocial personality disorder is associated with substantial clinical, public health, and economic burdens. These burdens reflect symptomatic behaviors involving violence, irresponsibility, recklessness, and dishonesty, and high rates of psychiatric and medical comorbidities and disabilities. Since the DSM-3, the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, has required both conduct disorder before and syndromal antisocial behavior since the age of 15 years. Syndromal antisocial behavior since age 15 without conduct disorder is known as adulthood antisocial behavioral syndrome. And increasingly, it is at least as common as antisocial personality disorder, even though adulthood antisocial behavioral syndrome is not a DSM diagnosis. In a study funded by the National Institutes of Health, Goldstein and colleagues examined the prevalence and characteristics of antisocial personality disorder and adulthood antisocial behavioral syndrome among respondents in the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions 3. Prevalence of antisocial personality disorder was 4.3%, and the prevalence of adulthood antisocial behavioral syndrome was 20.3%. Both behavioral syndromes were significantly associated with substance use, mood, post-traumatic stress, and borderline and schizotypal personality disorders, as well as mental health-related disability. Most antisocial survey respondents did not seek treatment. The authors conclude that these findings highlight the importance of identifying effective prevention and treatment of antisocial syndromes. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, is most often diagnosed in childhood and can have significant negative impacts on educational, occupational, socioeconomic, and social outcomes. A substantial proportion of adults with ADHD report clinical levels of hyperactivity, impulsivity, and prominent attention-related symptoms. Lowering the symptom burden has been associated with greater functional improvement. Although clinical studies have evaluated the efficacy of methylphenidate in the treatment of adults with ADHD, few studies have explored treatment with the goal of symptom remission over symptom reduction. In a six-week randomized controlled trial that had symptom remission as its goal, researchers evaluated the efficacy and safety of individualized dosing within the approved dose range for osmotic-release oral system methylphenidate hydrochloride in adults with ADHD. The double-blind study sponsored by Janssen was designed to evaluate numerous aspects of ADHD symptoms and treatment. These aspects included individual dose determination, the collection of ratings of ADHD symptoms, work impairment, executive and cognitive functioning, interpersonal relationships, sleep patterns, and comorbid psychiatric conditions. 
treatment with osmotic release oral system methylphenidate in individualized doses with the goal of symptom remission resulted in greater ADHD symptom reduction and a greater remission rate compared to placebo. Overall, no unexpected adverse events were noted. The authors conclude that these data support the efficacy of osmotic release oral system methylphenidate treatment in the management of adults with ADHD, as well as the importance of individualized dosing. This article is freely available online. Please visit the January Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this study, sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, researchers examined whether metabolic syndrome or any of its components are associated with long-term resolution of depressive symptoms. In nearly 1,000 patients who were 62 years of age, the authors assessed abdominal obesity, low HDL cholesterol, high triglycerides, hypertension, and elevated fasting glucose or diabetes, all of which make up the metabolic syndrome. The researchers then followed the course of the patient's depression over the next five years. They found that metabolic syndrome per se was not associated with symptom resolution. However, low levels of HDL cholesterol and high levels of triglycerides were associated with an 18 to 19 percent lower probability of being symptom-free at follow-up. These findings were replicated after participants with prevalent coronary heart disease or stroke were excluded. On the basis of the study findings, the authors conclude that an adverse lipid profile, but not other components of the metabolic syndrome, may be associated with delayed recovery from depression. This article is freely available online. Please visit the January Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this longitudinal cohort study, researchers sought to determine the effect of medication interactions in elderly patients who were cognitively impaired and who were prescribed antipsychotics. The study, our CME offering for this month, was funded by the Seventh Framework Program of the European Union and conducted in 59 nursing homes in seven European countries and Israel. 600 individuals aged 65 years or older residing in the participating nursing homes were measured at baseline and 12 months. Study results showed that nearly half of the 600 cognitively impaired residents who were treated with an antipsychotic were also prescribed at least one drug potentially interacting with it. Residents potentially exposed to antipsychotic drug interactions had a nearly 70% increase risk of death compared to those taking antipsychotics but not potentially interacting concomitant medications. Interactions causing decreased blood pressure and falls were the most commonly reported, followed by those causing QT prolongation and sedation. Evidence from clinical trials indicates that the use of antipsychotic medications among elderly individuals with dementia may be associated with an increased risk of serious adverse events, including ischemic stroke and death. Part of this excess risk may be attributable to antipsychotic drug interactions. The authors conclude that antipsychotics should be used with extreme caution, especially among individuals receiving concomitant cardiovascular and psychotropic medications. Data from this study contribute to the ongoing debate on the safety of antipsychotic medications in the elderly. 
To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the January Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Early recognition of individuals at risk for depressive and anxiety disorders is key to influencing the onset and course of these disorders. A parental history of depression or anxiety is an important risk factor for the development of both disorders. However, knowledge about the magnitude of this risk is limited because large-scale longitudinal studies with follow-up into adulthood are scarce. It is therefore possible that offspring who are at highest risk may be identified by easy-to-determine parental psychiatric characteristics, family context characteristics, and offspring characteristics. In a recent study supported with funding from Dutch institutions, researchers used data from a prospective cohort study of 523 offspring of patients treated for depressive or anxiety disorders at one of 16 psychiatric services in the Netherlands. Structured diagnostic interviews were conducted to assess offspring mood and anxiety disorders at baseline and at 4, 6, 8, and 10-year follow-up. Study results show that an estimated two-thirds of offspring of depressed or anxious patients developed a condition similar to that of their parents before the age of 35 years. Parental early onset, having two affected parents and female gender, increased offspring risk even further, while healthy family functioning decreased risk. The authors conclude that these markers, all relatively basic characteristics, may be valuable in identifying those offspring at greatest risk as they could be routinely assessed by professionals working with parents as well as professionals working with their offspring. Current strategies for identifying individuals at high risk for psychosis mainly target attenuated positive symptoms. These strategies can detect one-third of clinical cohorts who will transition to psychosis within a three-year period. However, additional risk markers are sorely needed. The authors of this meta-analysis that was funded by the National Institute of Mental Health compared neuropsychological performance in people at clinically high risk for psychosis, in healthy controls, and in subjects with first-episode psychosis. Additionally, the authors sought neuropsychological risk indicators that could identify individuals already at clinical high risk for psychosis who would ultimately convert to psychosis. Sixty neuropsychological tests from nine domains in 32 studies were meta-analyzed. The studies included 3,000 subjects. Compared to healthy controls, subjects at clinical high risk for psychosis performed significantly worse in seven of nine domains. Compared to subjects with first-episode schizophrenia, subjects at clinical high risk for psychosis performed significantly better in five of six domains. Among those subjects who were at high risk for psychosis, those who did convert to psychosis performed significantly worse in six of eight domains than those who did not ultimately develop psychosis. The authors conclude that taken together, subjects at clinical high risk for psychosis have mild to moderate globally distributed neuropsychological deficits that lie between those found in first episode schizophrenia and in healthy controls. Neuropsychological deficits predict conversion to psychosis, but the deficits overlap, reducing the current utility of specific neuropsychological tests for risk stratification.
As millions of individuals practice some form of yoga for mental and physical wellness, lately there has been increasing interest in evaluating yoga interventions for mental disorders like depression. Well-designed clinical studies are needed to evaluate these practices in outpatients who may still be experiencing significant depressive symptoms despite treatment. Investigators from the University of Pennsylvania conducted an eight-week randomized wait-list-controlled pilot study of an add-on yoga program for outpatients with major depressive disorder. The yoga program featured a breathing-based meditation technique called Sudarshan Kriya Yoga, which had previously been proposed to improve symptoms of depression and anxiety. The study enrolled 25 subjects, most of whom had depression rating scores indicating severe depression. All subjects were required to continue their current medications for the duration of the study. Patients randomized to the yoga arm demonstrated significantly greater improvements in their depression and anxiety scores after both one month and two months of the meditation intervention. The authors conclude that these findings suggest the feasibility of an add-on meditation-based intervention for outpatients with major depressive disorder. Increasing rates of autism have generated the attention of researchers who now shift their attention to environmental factors that might explain the higher prevalence of this disorder. With funding support from the Canadian Research Institutes of Health, the authors of this systematic review and meta-analysis examine the relationship between antenatal exposure to selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, and child autism. The role of maternal mental illness as a potential confounding factor was investigated in detail. Four case-controlled studies and two cohort studies were included in the meta-analysis. The authors first examined unadjusted associations, exposure to SSRIs during the first trimester and during any time during pregnancy were associated with child autism in both case control and cohort studies. The authors next examined the role of maternal mental illness as a confounding variable. When only adjusted estimates from studies that controlled for maternal mental illness were included, the effect of SSRI exposure was significant only in first trimester exposure and in case-controlled studies. Results from the cohort studies were non-significant. When only estimates from studies that restricted their samples to women with mental illness were included, the effect of antenatal SSRI exposure was non-significant in both case control and cohort studies. The authors conclude that the reported associations between antenatal SSRI exposure and autism are likely to be confounded by maternal mental illness. However, although this observation is of interest to practitioners and mothers who have taken or are considering taking SSRIs, the authors note that whether this and other confounders fully account for the increased risk in autism remains unclear. Distinguishing patients with bipolar disorder from those with major depressive disorder can be very difficult unless the patients have a clear history of mania. To improve accuracy in diagnosing patients, an objective biomarker for differential diagnosis is needed. In this government-funded study, the authors examined white matter microstructure as a potential biomarker for distinguishing patients with bipolar disorder from those with major depressive disorder. To do this, they used diffusion tensor imaging. 
The study included 16 patients with bipolar disorder and 23 patients with major depressive disorder who were depressed or in euthymic states. 23 healthy volunteers were also included. Diffusion tensor imaging was conducted in all participants. Whole brain, voxel-based morphometric analysis was used to detect any significant difference in fractional anisotrophy between patients. As a result, fractional anisotrophy values in the anterior part of the corpus callosum were significantly decreased in bipolar patients compared to patients with major depressive disorder. This finding did not depend on the patient's affective state. The decrease was associated with increased radial diffusivity values. The fractional anisotrophy values predicted bipolar disorder and major depressive disorder in all patients with a correct classification of 77%. The authors conclude that patients with bipolar disorder have microstructural abnormalities in the corpus callosum during depressed or euthymic states. These abnormalities may deteriorate the exchange of emotional information between the cerebral hemispheres and result in emotional dysregulation. These results indicate a possible use of diffusion tensor imaging as a differential diagnostic tool. The likelihood of being helped or harmed ratio, or LHH, is a measure of the association of a treatment with a favorable outcome versus its association with an unfavorable outcome. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade explains the significance of the LHH and discusses practical issues and limitations related to its use. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the January Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. We are pleased to announce the launch of Practicing Psychiatry in the Digital Age, a new website supported by ODH, Inc. that aims to bridge the gap between technology and the treatment of those suffering from mental illness. The website features an editorial by Dr. John P. Doherty, an expert on implementing innovative technologies into both the clinical and managed care settings, as well as brief summaries and blog discussions of research exploring exciting advancements in digital mental health care. Visit digitalage.psychiatrist.com today to see everything that this site has to offer. Binge eating disorder, or BED, is the most common eating disorder, but it is often overlooked in clinical practice. Individuals with BED may experience consequences that include psychological distress, obesity, and metabolic symptoms. Read this CME supplement, Supplement 1 for 2017, which was supported by Shire, to better recognize the signs and symptoms of BED and to provide appropriate evidence-based care. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the January issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com or just enter January into the keyword search. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.